I want to start with a moment of introspection. <laughs> I want you to think back to a specific moment in your life, if you can, you can sort of identify one perhaps, for which you think that was a major spiritual breakthrough. You look back on that moment and you think suddenly just something clicked. Uh, I suppose you can define a spiritual breakthrough in many different ways, but how about this? The moment when you knew in your head, what you knew in your head became something that you, you really knew with your whole being, something that was fundamental to you, whereas before it had just been sort of information. Something that changed everything, perhaps. Perhaps it was a joyful thing. It might have been a heartbreaking thing. It might have been both. But I wonder if you can just, just to think about that. It's not necessary to share with anybody else, although you may want to in chatting with folk afterwards, but, but just think, a moment when suddenly it just slotted into place. I wonder if you can just do that for a moment of quiet. There was one that uh, particularly stood out for me. And, um, you know, it was one of those really obvious things. I mean, I had known about the Father's love, the fact of the Father's love, since my conversion, aged 18. I was just 18. And, um, you know, I knew that that was fairly fundamental. And um, particularly in terms of his love his incomprehensible love for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I knew about that. It, it, it was just a, a fact. And then you read the most famous verse in the whole Bible, don't you? God so loved his one and only son. No, that's not what it says. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's actually shocking when you put it like that. When you realize particularly the negative connotations of a word like world in John's gospel. You know, perhaps something, you know, if it's raining this afternoon, I'm sure it's not, but you could go through John's gospel and look for all the times you find the word world in John's gospel and I think you'll find pretty much every single time it's negative. It has negative connotations. It's a world in rebellion against God. A world that hates God, that, that refuses to accept the light when the light comes into the world. God so loved the world that he sacrifices the son that he loves this astonishing love for his son and, and I knew that of course and I, and, and I know that you know that it's basic but I didn't really know it until the moment I held my son aged about two minutes for the first time in my hands and that sensation was so vivid that I've never forgotten it I would never allow any harm to come to this fragile little person. Ever. That sense has never gone away now that we have two children. And we've lost three others in miscarriages over the years. 
I never want any harm to come to this precious person. The fact that they're teenagers now hasn't dulled that too much. <laughs> but here's the point. If I felt that about my children, how much more does the father feel that for his son? And that he loved the world that hated him so much that he gave up his son that he loved so much. For father and son together loved me enough to face the horror of the cross. Now, that, that moment was a life-transforming moment. It was a spiritual breakthrough that I've never forgotten. Where something I knew in my head was profoundly deepened, shaken, shattered, made fundamental by the experience of some event in life. Now, I don't think that we as people are very good at trying to understand our life experiences through the lens of Scripture. I don't think we're very good at trying to do that. The interesting thing is, I think we are even weaker at trying to understand the Scriptures through the lens of our experience. But we can't divorce the two. Our experiences in life profoundly shape and inform how we understand the scriptures. Now, it is not that they are an equal authority. Far from it. But we, we bring who we are to the Bible when we open it. <clears throat> we bring who we are to God when we encounter him. And the remarkable thing is that he uses the sort of the putty and the clay of this broken life to make something to contain his treasure. And that's not a bad thing. The second thought I want to, to bring just as we begin is just to think about what the Psalms are because, you know, we're going to look at just a few that were written by David and most of them have little sort of subtitles that tell us they, they relate to a very specific event in David's life. That's, that's why we're going to look at them. Um, now, if you are well-taught and well-groomed believers, that you all are, I know, I can see it, you're very well-groomed and very well-taught, um, but you know that the Bible is God's word to us. God has spoken to us through this book. That is what it is. It is delivered to us. And yet, when it comes to the Psalms, that's, that doesn't quite fit, does it? Because, you know, the Psalms are people's prayers to God. That's what they are. And we're looking at David's words to God from very specific events, some of them. And that's rather different from a lot of the rest of the Bible, isn't it? It's, it's almost sort of upside down. And yet here's the most astonishing thing, and this is one of the most pastorally crucial things that we're going to see this week, is that at the same time as they are prayers from individuals to God, and in our case, one individual to God, at the same time, God uses them as his word to us. We hear God speak as people speak their experience to God in prayer. 
Now that is a liberating thing, as we'll see, because when they say some pretty hard things in their prayers, when they start shouting at God and saying things that seem outrageous, we mustn't forget that actually this is God's word to us at the same time. Which, at the very least, means that, well, it gives us permission, doesn't it? To say the same kinds of things back to God. We can quote scripture at him, if I can put it like that. Well, we hear God speak to us through the prayers of someone speaking to God in the light of his own experiences of life and of God. So David the shepherd boy is a strong case in point. And it is from his own experiences, not least as a teenager, that shows that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the cosmos, is a shepherd God. Hopefully you're already beginning to see the obvious link between David's experience and David's theology. Well, let's dive into um, uh, David's life. And so we're basically going to flip between the books of Samuel and the Psalms. Um, So turn back to 1 Samuel 16. You might want to keep a bit of paper or something in Psalm 23. But we're going to flip between the two because we're doing the life of David through the Psalms. So you can't really do that without going to Samuel. And um, in chapter 16 is where we're just going to dive in. Of course, you can't understand David's anointing as king without understanding Saul's anointing as king. And the people a few chapters before ours had asked God for a king. And um, that is an ambiguous thing in terms of God's big picture story because... (laughs) On the one hand, as we know, sitting this side of the cross, that having a king was right at the heart of God's plan. And yet the ambiguity comes back in Samuel is because they ask for a king, but it's for all the wrong reasons. They want to be like the other nations. And that wasn't a great start. And Samuel, in fact, says to God, look, that's no good. They want to be like the other nations. You can't allow this. And God says, well, you're right, but I am going to allow it. So their wish is granted. Saul is anointed king back in chapter 9. And he really was tall, dark, and handsome. Uh, you know, the sort of um, the, the pin-up of the day. He was everything you could want in a king. He would have been perfect for Hello magazine, um, or Shalom magazine, I suppose, as it would have been then. Um, and he had such potential. You know, he was one of the, the, the greats, or so it seemed. He, he had such potential, but he was one of the Bible's truly tragic figures in the true sense of the word. He was a tragic figure. And the heart of his problem was his failure to obey God and the profound insecurity that resulted from that. And we'll think particularly about the effect that that had on David tomorrow. But, but Saul was brave and courageous. He was a good leader on the whole. He had a good following. The people, you know, half the, half the battle of leadership is to get people to follow you. And people did. But if you're God's king, that's not enough. Not enough just to have people following you. You need to follow God. And so God rejects the people's choice for someone different, very different. 
and it's devastating. Just to look at the end of chapter 15 and verse 26, but Samuel said to him, I will not, this is to Saul that is, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of Yahweh and Yahweh has rejected you as king over Israel. It's a devastating moment. And then down to verse 35 of the chapter 15, until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And Yahweh regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. It's a devastating sentence. Please understand, it's not that God thinks he's made a mistake, but it's that God sees the tragedy of the situation. And so in chapter 16, Samuel is sent on a quest to anoint his successor all the time while Saul is still effectively on the throne. So God has withdrawn from him, but Saul is still there on the throne. And as far as the people is concerned, he's the king. Um, And uh, Samuel is naturally rather nervous about this mission to go and find a successor to Saul. That puts him in danger, doesn't it? But God knows what he's doing. He sends him to Jesse's house to choose one of the sons. No idea why Jesse is the one chosen out of all the families. I mean, he has an interesting pedigree. If you were at Cornerstone three years ago when we studied the book of Ruth, you'll know that Jesse comes from an interesting family. He's the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. So perhaps he sat on Granny's knee as she told him the stories of how she came to live in the Promised Land as a Moabite. Hmm, that's an interesting thing to have in your family tree. Not completely Jewish, then. And yet, she knew, perhaps better than anybody in those days of the judges, knew the grace-filled chesed love, the covenant faithful love of God. She had experienced it, this love that opens itself up to the alien and the stranger and the vulnerable and the refugee and the widow and the orphan. And uh, Samuel invites the family to come up and make a sacrifice to God there in verse 5, and they all line up. First comes Eliab. He seems a good chap. Samuel thinks so, verse 6. But no, God says, no, it's not him. Verse 7, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is teaching Samuel and indeed Israel a crucial lesson. A heart for God is more significant than anything. Uh, Of course, in positions of high leadership, it, it, it helps, it's useful to be gifted and talented. But in the end, they're nothing without God, as Saul would discover. And then comes Abinadab. Samuel's getting on to God wavelength. No, no, it's not him. Shammar's next. No, not him. Nor are several others. They're all impressive chaps. I mean, as we discover in chapter 17, they're the oldest three. They're all soldiers in the army. They're doing their, their bit, but they're not the ones. Well, that's funny. Isn't there anybody else? Is there anybody else, Jesse? Well, look at his response in verse 12. Oh, yeah, there's the youngest. He's tending the sheep. Didn't even bother to get him in the lineup. Do you get the picture? The whole family has been brought together where, when Israel's most senior religious figure comes to visit, 
when the youngest is left out in the cold, or rather, off with the sheep. Where he belongs, presumably. I mean, he's just the titch, the runt. I mean, do you see what that says? I mean, imagine if the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Prime Minister decided to pay your family a visit one Saturday afternoon and asked to meet everyone in the family. And if you were the youngest, you'd be pretty peed if you'd been left out to play in the playground. I mean, imagine the hang-ups this must have given the youngest. Jesse left him out. Now, of course, I'm speculating a little bit, but, but it can't have done his confidence much good. Jesse wasn't told what Samuel was looking for, but whatever it was, it can't have included the shepherd boy. Notice how brilliantly the writer tells the story from verse 11. Samuel said, yeah, send for him. And we won't sit down until he arrives. I mean, he could have gone off for miles with the wretched sheep. So they were all sort of hanging around, you know, sort of, not, we're not going to sit down. So he sent for him and he had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. That's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of Yahweh came powerfully upon David. His name has not been mentioned in the whole book until that moment. David. The shepherd boy. Overlooked even by his own dad. It's hard to be certain about this, but David was probably no more than around 14 or 15. I've, in the back of the, the notes booklets, I've given a sort of estimates of his ages at various points. There are only three ages that we know about. We know that he died at 70 and that he became king over Jerusalem at 37 and so on. But the rest of the time, you're making sort of educated guesses. So it's thought that he was around 14 or 15 Imagine how weird that must have been. I mean, basically, you're looking after sheep all the time. You're out there. You come in, and this weird old bloke pours oil on your head. <laughs> That's quite odd. It's just so crazy. It's all topsy-turvy. But then God so often works like that. He takes the most unexpected people to do the most unexpected things. I wonder if you've ever heard of a chap called Joe Church. Uh, he was a medical missionary in Rwanda. He and his wife, D.C., went out in the 1920s from Cambridge. And together, they worked very closely with some remarkable Ugandans and Rwandans who were converted, people like Simeon and Sabambi, William Nagenda, Festo Kivenjere, um, uh, if you know uh, Connie Marembi at All Souls, Festo uh, was her uncle. And they were right at the heart of what became known as the East African Revival. And it was a remarkable work of God that drew countless thousands to Christ across the whole of Eastern Africa. Just remarkable. Uh, and um, it was often despite the Western missionaries, not because of them. One of the remarkable features of the East African Revivals was right from the very earliest days, you had indigenous leaders right at the front of it. And Joe Church was one of the people who really got that, even in the 1920s and 30s, and encouraged people to be up front. And in fact, he wasn't as good a speaker as some of the other guys, particularly Festo. 
And um, one of the surprising things is that actually he was a hopeless linguist. He was rubbish at languages. He was a medic. I mean, you know, anyway. Um, <clears throat> but not only that, he'd grown up with a stutter. And, um, and, and so, you know, actually public speaking was terrifying for him. He could do it, but he hated it. And um, I read this biography, this history of the East African revival. It was absolutely hilarious because basically... You know, he, he tried to speak Swahili, but he, he really couldn't. And he would just make up words. I mean, he's the classic Englishman abroad. Um, and um, so, you know, he would just, he would add endings onto English words to make them sound a bit more Bantu-like or Swahili. So, you know, instead of having the team, he would have the Timu. Um, and uh, the highest became the highesty for the Lord, and uh, he spoke of having a, a visiony and revivally. He basically just added I on the ends of lots of words. Um, you know, Swahili sounds a bit like that, but that, that, that's not really good enough. Um, the interesting thing is that that particular weakness, you know, he was rubbish at languages. I mean, you know, he would have failed first class in missionary college or whatever. That meant, that forced him to have to rely much more on his African brothers and sisters to do the speaking. So God used that. So he was a real backroom boy. He was a prayer warrior, and he was a great mentor. And people like Festo were the, you know, Festo was known as the Billy Graham of Africa. Rather, it should be the other way around, shouldn't it? Billy Graham should be known as the Festo of America. But anyway, that's another story. But, but... You know, isn't that wonderful that God used somebody who had real weaknesses in some areas, but that was the, the, um, the, the means of God growing his church in really remarkable ways. Take courage from that. David's weakness and unlikelihood were not an impediment for God the teenage shepherd would go on to bring many lessons from the mountainside to both his rule and his devotional life. And he could never have known that as he was called in by Samuel. But age 15, there he was, anointed. And for him, the problems were just beginning. Even though Samuel has anointed him and God's spirit has come upon him, there is the little, small, inconvenient fact that there is already a king who possesses the throne. Anointing or no anointing. Saul is king. Everybody knows it. He has a following, which puts David, get this, on a God-given collision course with Saul. More than that, members of his own family think his place is still on the hillside with the sheep. In chapter 17, uh, the Philistines are under Goliath are looming large, and um, uh, David infuriates his older brothers, the three who are in the army. He's just sort of singing songs to the king. He's just the sort of minstrel. And he infuriates Eliab when he simply asks other soldiers, you know, what's going on? And in chapter 17, verse 28, uh, Eliab says, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Get back to your sheep. Get to your job, boy. 
And of course, Saul doesn't think David will be able to do much either, but that's no surprise because nobody did. Jesse didn't think much. Eliab didn't think much. Saul didn't think much. But Yahweh, the God of the unexpected, thought everything. And that's the point of the story of the battle with Goliath. Yes, David's good at aiming stones with his sling. Yes, he did battle a lion and a bear to protect his sheep. Yes, he was brave and so on. He was all these things. But friends, that is not why he defeated Goliath. It was exclusively because God had anointed him as king to lead and protect Israel by defeating a sworn enemy. It is God's way of putting David center stage. He's my man. Or rather, that's my boy. Literally. I wonder if you're beginning to see any bigger significance. A God-sent king anointed while another king is on the throne. Conflict's inevitable. A God-sent king whose family think he's out of his mind and expect him to go back to the day job. A God-sent king goes into battle against the people's enemy single-handed without any protection, armor, or strength. Is that beginning to sound familiar? To give you a further clue, let me quote the last verse of the famous World War I poem, Jesus of the Scars, by Edward Shillitoe. Uncle John quotes it in The Cross of Christ, but here's just the last verse. The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. Hold that thought. And so we now come back to the psalm. Psalm 23. We've no idea when David wrote this. This is one of those psalms that we just told is a psalm of David. We're not given a specific lifetime event to, to, to pinpoint this one. Perhaps it was one cold night in his Jerusalem palace as he allowed his mind just to sort of wander back over his life. You know, how far he'd come. Who'd have thought when he was out there on the, the hillsides at night with the, the sheep? Who'd have thought it? Perhaps he reminisced, thinking, here I am with these grotty, smelly animals with all the family back at home. And then the thought begins to occur to him. What God did for the sheep, uh, what, what he himself had done for the sheep, God has done for me. For Yahweh truly has been my shepherd. This is a psalm of truth, hope, and love, refined in the furnace of a complex and often very stressful life. Uh, forget the sort of fluffy cuddly and the cute looking after sheep is hard work i've had precious little experience of it apart from occasionally my my on my mother's side various members of the family are all farmers and my aunt had a farm in leicestershire and sometimes we go and help her go out um uh, to to go around the fields and look at the sheep and stuff uh, but that's about it i didn't really have much to do with it but you know sheep are vulnerable to predators they need herding they require health checks they need being led to feeding grounds they are very dependent upon the farmer, not unlike the dependence of small children on their parents. So David realizes that this is true of his dependence upon God. 
Now, there's so much to say about this great psalm. It's, it's become embedded into cultures worldwide, including in Uganda. This is one of my favorite. Uh, I've got uh, just outside our kitchen, we've got a sort of a collage of photos of funny signs. We sort of collect funny signs. But this is one of my favorites. I saw this in a traffic jam. It was a little lorry a bit far ahead of us. And uh, this is what it said on the side. Um, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not need no nothing. You couldn't put it better, I'd say. I think that should be our motto for Cornerstone. I shall not need no nothing. <laughs> Marvellous. I love it. It's just great. It's just hole in one, I say. Right. Well, I- I've tried to pick out three key ideas. I mean, there are lots of ways, and you know, lots of different people have tackled this, this psalm in different ways. I've tried to pick out three three sort of ideas that that help us get through it. The first first is I've called direction out in the fields. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. I mean, the imagery is one of the reasons the psalm's so well loved, isn't it? It's, It's pure balm, especially for urbanites. As urbanites, we we need to soak it up and relish it. It's a picture of tranquility and provision. Of course, it's not designed for us to sort of romanticize or idealize the countryside, but to help us delight in the shepherd. It's not Wordsworth who almost wants us to worship nature. It's the psalmist who wants us to worship the shepherd. Because it's a poetic expression of the sheep's infinite debt to the shepherd, isn't it? After all, just think how terrifying the countryside becomes for a lost sheep without a shepherd's direction, not least in the Middle East. He knows where the green pastures are for food and rest. When you're out in the desert or scrubland, that's quite important. He knows where there's water, quiet waters note. Uh, Natural water can be a threat with floods and torrents, but no, not here. This is quenching and refreshment, quiet waters. Again, in parched and desert and scrub-like land, that is life and death. He knows the safe paths and which have treacherous shale or rocks. How easily a sprained ankle as we go for walks in the hills can come just from just a bit of loose pebbles. Knowing the shepherd has an eye out for dangers and threats, the fields now become as appealing as it's possible for them to be. I want to take a little commercial break and and uh, play you what I think is one of the most lovely settings of Psalm 23. I think it's one of those psalms that can be turned into saccharine very, very easily. And a lot of Christian songs err closely on the side of saccharine and schmaltz. Um, This arrangement can be if it's not gone so well. Um, But it's by one of my top three composers of all time, Franz Schubert. He died at only 31, and that somehow makes it even more poignant. And it's such a simple setting, and it's aching in its beauty without being sentimental, I think. The piano accompaniment particularly brings out the words with rippling streams and overhanging valleys. But above them all, just reflect on the the fact 
of the all-supplying shepherd rather than anything else. And it's in German, you've got the translation there in case you wouldn't be able to work out that it is in fact Psalm 23. But even in the midst of this tranquility, there are threats. There are dark valleys which throw looming shadows onto the past, shadows that remind us of our mortality. Did you notice just how gently and subtly Schubert changes the, changed the tone and mood for the valley of the shadow of death? Those shadows may, may not be simple reminders of our mortality. They may actually conceal bringers of mortality, predators like wolves and lions. After all, didn't David have to fight off lions and bears to protect his flock? He knew full well the dangers faced not just by sheep, but also shepherds out in the wilds. And as he reflects on his life, he knows that God has done the same for him. You see, the rod and the staff, they're often focused on as discipline instruments, for the shepherd, you know, the, 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 the crook pulling the sheep back to, to keep it under control. But actually, yeah, that's true. But they're also weapons to protect from predators, from dangers. That is why there are comfort. Comfort in the real sense of the word. Comfort, like encourage, literally means to give strength, to give courage. It's not a soft or weak word. It is empowering, fortifying has the same root as comfort. To give energy and strength. And it needs to happen because verse 5 makes it very clear. There are enemies in this world. Just as the sheep have predators, so God's people have enemies. It's no accident that Christians are by far and away the most likely people to be persecuted today. And it's always been like this. We'll think more about that tomorrow. And I'm not talking about the soft and awkward difficulties we might have in this country. I'm talking about prison, torture, and death for following the Good Shepherd. Seems insane. Irrational. It is. There's nothing rational about it at all. Being a sheep in a hostile world is scary. The shadows are long and dark. The enemies are brutal and merciless. So do you see knowing that why the, 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 there's a shepherd on your case changes everything? David knew it firsthand, as we'll see through this week. It didn't stop his doubts and fears or even total panic attacks. He wasn't a fantasist about an easy life any more than he was a romantic about the countryside. The key difference, though, for him was the shepherd. That's why he can look danger in the face. Because in the end, life in the fields and through the valleys is not everything. Even for the sheep, he knows there's a home to go to. So grace, back in the home, verse 5, you prepare a table. Some of my best family holidays from my childhood were spent in the Scottish Highlands. And uh, sometimes my grandparents would you know, rent a huge house for a week and all the, the cousins... And uh, the children, grandchildren were pile in. Uh, here we all are, 
uh, one afternoon or one lunchtime in the middle of nowhere. Um, <clears throat> and, and there might be 20 of us there with uh, sort of various hangers-on. There might be 30 there for the, the week. We'd have these huge breakfasts. We'd make our sandwiches for the day, and then we'd be out on, on the hills uh, for the rest of the day. We'd come back together for games and puzzles around the fire. Uh, no electronics, no TV, no phone, just hanging out together. Chaotic, noisy, sometimes tricky, especially with difficult aunts and uncles. You know what it's like. Uh, not necessarily relaxing, but always memorable. And one of the feelings, uh, one of the, 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 the feelings I used to love was that, and maybe we'll experience a bit of this this, this week, that moment of getting back to the house after a really wet day. <laughs> Because even the summer, you know that you know, you're in Scotland and it rains in Scotland, and so that's just part of the deal. So you just don't worry about it. You're going to get wet. You just know that. But that marvelous moment, getting back in the evening, hanging out the coats, putting out the muddy boots, collapsing in front of a blazing fire, burning windswept cheeks, and that feeling of you know, satisfaction of a day outside. Well, I think that's something of the sensation of these last two verses getting home after a day on the hills, a table set, food ready to eat, and the twist of verse 5 is that the enemies who thought they had the upper hand now have to witness their defeat. By themselves, the sheep are vulnerable and easy prey, but the shepherd has changed all that. It's not a gloating image. It's a simply factual image of their defeat. The sheep alone are losers, but sheep plus shepherd are victors. That's the point. But what is wonderful about this psalm is that the picture of the feast doesn't stop with supper after a day on the hills. It's about hope and security in the house forever. Yes, you read that right. Forever does mean eternity. Because you see, we're not talking about any old shepherd here. Do you see how the psalm begins and ends with the same name, Lord Yahweh, in capital letters? The shepherd of the sheep who provides everything, in verse 1, has become the host who provides everything for the feast, in 6. And that's what blows David away. The shepherd boy who became a king is truly humbled and overwhelmed by the grace of the shepherd God who opened up his home even to him. And guess what? You and I are invited to God's heavenly banquet. That's the image of George Herbert's beautiful, wonderful poem, simply called Love. He pictures love, or God, as it clearly is in the, in the poem, love. Love is a host who meets a gatecrasher at the door, and he invites him to suffer. He says, love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin, but quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love answered, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, ah, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and, smiling, did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. 
You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. David's experience of being a shepherd has taught him about God, his shepherd, but he knows far more about God. His protecting love and grace go wider than the image that shepherds could possibly contain. For as Herbert says, love has taken the blame. And what we have is what I've called a staggering legacy. And as far as I can tell from my limited research, the image of shepherd is never used in the Old Testament for anything before David comes along. There are shepherds, but it's never used as a metaphor. After all, shepherds don't have a high profile or an impressive status, so it's not surprising. But after David, it's as if the profession has a whole new prestige. And I've outlined some of the references in the rest of the Old Testament to the imagery under five key headings. You can see them on page five. Notice how it's developed. Just as David was a shepherd to the people, so his successors, both royal and priestly, are to be shepherds as well. But they fail. And so through the prophets, God suggests they'll be replaced. But confusingly, it's first described as another David's going to come. And then, in Ezekiel particularly, we're told by God, that their shepherd will be himself. And what is clear by the time Jesus comes is that he is both David's shepherd descendant and God the shepherd at one and the same time. But here's the twist. You see, I don't think David could possibly have imagined this quite happening. As he guides his flock through the valley of mortality and along past their enemies, his descendant must do something remarkable for those helpless crowds who are like sheep without a shepherd. Because in John 10, the good shepherd says, I must lay down my life for my sheep. I must go to the cross to fulfill my mission as shepherd. And that is why he is great David's greater son. He is the ultimate shepherd who invites his smelly but beloved sheep to spend eternity with him at his heavenly banquet. It's laid out. It's waiting. Our seats have our name places. just a matter of time before quick-eyed love says you must sit down and taste my meat and so we will dear brothers and sisters we will sit down and eat how incredible is that Praise God, our shepherd's Lord. That is grace. That is love. That is the gospel. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you that through David you have taught us of yourself. Through David's understanding from his own experience of life what it means to know you, we pray that we might share in that understanding, not just the stuff we know in our heads, but something fundamental, something understood, something lived. For your glory's sake. Amen.